This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sector's podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Longwoods International, one of the premier research firms in the travel and tourism space in the world. Longwoods produces groundbreaking research, thought-leading insights, and excellent counsel and service to DMOs in areas such as visitor research, advertising effectiveness, image research, and their new resident sentiment study. Learn more about Longwoods International at longwoods-intl.com. And now it's on to our show. Today, we welcome Marsha Lindsay, the founder, CEO, and chief strategist of Lindsay Foresight and Stratagem. Marsha's life work is research that identifies emerging marketplace trends, then recommending what's best for future competitive advantage and accelerated growth. Her analysis is grounded in decades of scholarship on behavioral science, universal and timeless drivers of motivation, attitudes, behaviors, and decision-making, all applied to brand strategy and effective marketing, employee, and corporate dynamics, including change management. Think tanks leveraging her experience include Zurich's Gottlieb Duttweiler Institute of Economic and Social Studies on Future of Direct-to-Consumer Commerce and Monitor Deloitte's at UC Berkeley on the fusion of data mining, behavioral economics, and social networks. Those publishing her insights include Fast Company, NPR, Forbes, Investors Business Daily, The New York Times, Adobe's CMO.com, AdAge, Becker's Hospital Review, Becker's Healthcare CFO, and Medium. She has presented at Columbia University's Executive MBA program, Indie Summits in Beijing and London, IPA's Marketing Effectiveness Week in London, World Business Forum in New York City, the 21st Century Fox, Procter & Gamble, ConAgra, Kohler, Mercury Marine, Advertising Research Foundation, the Conference Board, IAI Festival of China, and the four A's. When do you ever have a chance at a personal life? So yeah, she clearly knows her stuff and you better strap in because Marsha Lindsay, welcome to DMOU. Well, thank you, Bill. And thank you for that very generous, albeit long introduction. My gosh, we should cut that uh, way too much. And I have a life because I have a way to express my obsessiveness about learning and teaching. Let's put it that way. And you got a pretty cool husband to go along with it. I do, and just wonderful friends. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, we have had a long and rewarding relationship over the years, uh, occasionally even having the opportunity to work together. But more often, it was your kind and compassionate inclusion to allow us to learn from you through Brandworks University, which was the coolest event on the planet during its days, and the conversations that we've had with you and Rick on the all-too-few opportunities that we have to break bread at one of Madison's sensational culinary finds. I place you as one of the top thought leaders in the branding space, but not necessarily in the destination branding space. And here's what I mean by that. You've developed compelling destination brands. Your My Beach for Myrtle Beach was simply inspired. But you have done considerably more work outside the tourism space. And that's why we wanted you on DMOU, because you come at it from an insider's view with an outsider's perspective, which I think, honestly, at this point in time, we really need. So so here's our first question. The last time we talked, you said that despite the carnage of the response to the pandemic, this is the opportunity of a lifetime, that DMOs are in a position to recast the narrative of the critical need for destination marketing and create our futures. Tell us where the opportunity to reimagine destination marketing in the eyes of our communities, where does that come from? 
It's a great question and a very timely question, Bill, because as you alluded to, uh, my whole career has been the study of uh, behavioral science, how people make decisions, uh, the psychology, the neuroscience of it, what today we would call behavioral economics. And of course, all preference and decision making is driven by emotion. Uh, we know that the human brain still has the operating software that it had 100,000 years ago, long before people had language or rational thought. And a lot of our decision making is irrational. Our behaviors are irrational. And they are driven by emotion. For those folks with brain injuries, if they are unable to feel things emotionally, they can't decide anything. They can't shop. So the th opportunity before us now is to ramp up the emotional nature of our communications about our communities, especially today uh, in light of COVID and uh, the degree to which so many of us are missing friends or family or outings, or the chance to see coworkers or have adventure. There is a social acceptability for expressing ourselves emotionally that really has not existed before. So it's socially acceptable now, and we can take that opportunity to say more about how we're feeling. Mm. Secondly, among the most powerful and motivating of emotions is fear of loss. One of the great findings of behavioral economics is the degree to which people are moved more by the fear of losing something than the thought of saving something. The famous experiment is uh, whether or not people are more motivated at the thought of not losing $200 or saving $200. It's the same thing, not losing $200 or saving $200. So the fear of loss is a very powerful emotional message that can be leveraged right now. Uh, you see uh, in the 2020 presidential election, the fear of loss has been a powerful motivator for uh, all political parties. Uh, everyone's saying, vote for us or lose this. But it's also true in communicating things about our communities to showcase the value of something by what we're losing by not being able, for example, to go to dinner or go to the symphony or travel to see family and friends. We can leverage the power of that loss and then make the emotional argument to dream about what it will be like to have it back, and then the emotional argument to motivate people, to inspire people emotionally, to do what it takes to get it back, things like advocacy and, and more. So, you know, destination marketing organizations over the past probably six months, because the first two months into the vid were more about reaching out and trying to save independent business and finding out ways to communicate on their behalf to locals that they were open or they had uh, takeout or delivery systems or online shopping options. So really for the past six months, in talking with community leaders, I think that we have seen a lot of destination marketing organizations paint the loss and say, look, if you don't come to the aid of, of small business, we could lose them forever. And then the, we lose something powerful about the culture of this community. And thus, if you want to save them, then you can't lose us. You can't cut funding to your destination marketing organization because we really are the first line for recovery. So that's what we've been seeing going on, and you know that. But I saw an interesting study the other day that also kind of connected with the presidential election because people on both sides, it just is beyond them why the other person is voting the way they're voting. And it's because that's the way they voted last time. And the study was, and I'm sure you've seen iterations of this, but at very young age, toddler, is they'll face them with, you know, 10 blocks, and they're all the same block. And the child will pick one, 
And the next day, we'll push the other nine away and wants to play with the one that he or she picked yesterday. So moving that back into our space in communicating. So we have community leaders that get what we do and probably will continue to pick us and support us. But for those who didn't in the past, does saying that you lose us, you lose something really big matter if they're just going to go the same vote that they've always voted? Great way to pose the question. And of course, I would posit that as wise as the strategy is to say, support these local businesses or you will lose something important, actually as a rational appeal, and it can be ramped up to be more emotional. Feeling emotions oneself and experiencing the emotions is more powerful than a rational appeal that appeals to the logic in one's brain. I would posit that the more favorable way to say what a lot of folks are doing is to say, just think of the loss. What are the things, list the things that you will personally feel terrible about uh, by losing the chance to go to this restaurant or take that stroll with your husband again down that street or expose your kids to the symphony or uh, getting on that plane trip and going to see uh, grandma. We have to make it more visceral, more personal, less logical. It really is uh, the, the power of loss. I cannot overestimate really how magic it is to get people to think differently and to persuade. And uh, what we have to do is make it less about keeping a local restaurant or a hotelier in business and more about how that changes your life. We value experiences. We increasingly define our wealth and self-concept in terms of, of experiences and these are the things that are different from the pattern of our everyday life. Again, back to the, the brains that we all have that are still those of our ancestors 100,000 years ago. We are all optimized for pattern recognition. That's what helps survival of the fittest. So we most notice and remember what is a deviation from the everyday pattern. Uh, the most successful advertising for a category is that which deviates from the expected for the category. The thing that differentiates this week from last is how my experiences differentiate this week. Maybe I'm going out to see a friend for dinner. When you take differentiated experiences, differentiated patterns together and strengthen together, it's what creates a life because it's what we remember. It's the memories. Memories are just things we recall that were different from the regular pattern. The challenge of COVID is that all of our days and our weeks are the same. Yeah. Is it Wednesday or November? I can't remember. Right, right, right. So the thing that we lose is a sense of life, a sense of living. Differentiated experiences as provided by options to travel or go to dinner, go to the symphony or, or go on a, on a camping trip or see friends for dinner, uh, to be part of a community. Those things are what make a life a life. And so to ramp up the emotion from the illogical, we'll lose these businesses, to a visceral feeling like you're losing your life. And if you want it back, do this and this and this. That's what I mean by leveraging emotion. That's the opportunity that has been under-leveraged, and I would posit really needs to be taken advantage of. Yeah, we really need to tickle Broca's area of the brain because that's the part that, that identifies something that's different, that wasn't there before. And I love your use of the word visceral because that's really what it is. And for readers of my blog, they probably saw it, but if not, somewhere in late October, I shared a letter from a restaurant in Minneapolis called Hell's Kitchen. We love that place. And we actually had a, a client event there a number of years ago, and they were fabulous. And they've gone from, I don't know, 151 employees to seven. You know, they're doing delivery and they're doing takeout. But the person who penned it said, 
we're at 4% of last year, 4%. And then goes through just what that means to the people who's, and this is an employee owned restaurant. And to get really to the human emotion of what's going on, I think is going to be the key. So you also suggested that this moment in time is also a time that we can help our cities love themselves, which given all the businesses that are closing, the streets of our cities that are engulfed in protests, and a hospitality industry, which is you know, the soul of a community's culture, how can we teach our cities and our towns to love themselves at this moment in time? Well, speaking of emotions, uh, love is among the most powerful. The older one gets, I think we all learn the lesson that it's easy to love a person, a community, something, when everything's running along without much needed effort, uh, when you don't have to work at it, when there's nothing to forgive. The real test of love is when loving is hard, when you have to be the bigger person in the situation, when you have to be a caregiver because someone else can't take care of themselves or a community can't take care of themselves, when you have to put aside your own needs a little bit or your own wants to do something for the greater good. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing about teaching our cities and towns to, to love themselves is we need it now more than ever, and it requires uh, real love, personal sacrifice, going the extra mile when we cannot do what we want, and especially at a time like this when our fears are growing from COVID or whatever, or demonstrations are boarded up storefronts, the human tendency is to blame or point fingers or feel like I'm a victim of something bigger, so I certainly I can't take responsibility. It's, it's bigger than me. But the curious thing about blame and victimization, also very powerful motivators of, of emotion, is once one senses one is victimized, You'll see um, your victimhood even where it doesn't exist, and you also expect other people to solve your problem. So blaming others takes the responsibility off yourself to do much. This is where love comes in. You have to not go that way. You have to not see yourself as a victim, or even if you are, rise above it, not blame others, and rather to say, it's really tough right now, but the antidote to this is real love. What it really takes to do the difficult things, which is to see the larger picture, take action, move on, do a little self-sacrifice. Now, in the case of, of having communities and towns love themselves, I think one point of view on all this is to realize that it's actually a misnomer to call the category, the industry, the travel, hospitality, convention, visitor space. It's really a category that's life enhancement, mm -hmm. and it's what gives life meaning. When we want to encourage people to love their communities, to love each other, to help uh, those in this kind of business. It's really to say, I love you because you enhance my life. Again, this is ramping up the emotions. It's a way to say, I want to enhance you because you enhance me. There's a, a mutual social community benefit. And the other interesting thing about loving one's community, even when the loving is hard, combined with the concept of calling it the travel hospitality convention visitor space, it's sort of a misnomer, is the fact that this kind of love for one's community and this giving for the larger good of all, even though it's hard, has a name. We call it economic development, which is sort of a bad way to put it, but it really is love the community. How do you love the community enough to be its advocate, to help it rise, to surround it with all it takes, including a little bit of sacrifice yourself, because win-win is you end up 
having a meaningful community in which everyone there rises because life is enhanced there. I'm getting a little bit obtuse about love and emotion and economic development, but the point is that the opportunity to love oneself means do the tough things. And it cannot be stressed enough that economic development in these times is really, really tough. I'm a huge fan of McKinsey and Deloitte and Accenture. read a lot of their white papers as I do my studying. And a recent McKinsey article talked about reopening tourism-related businesses and managing their recovery in a way that is safe is paramount, but being economically viable will require coordination at a level not seen before. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of the point. How you love yourself is you coordinate and do things at levels not seen before. It really is a whole different level of economic development and strategic planning. I've been involved in economic development for years, as you have been. What this is going to take is nothing like before. New partnerships, new collaborations. I just cannot stress that a love. The way we love ourselves and our communities is we do the extraordinary because loving our communities at this time calls for the extraordinary. Yeah, I'm not sure there are very many destinations around the globe that still are talking about what they were talking about a year ago, which was over-tourism, maybe some coastal communities that got overrun this year. But I think part of that conversation of loving one's community is the opportunity for the destination marketing organization to step in and make sure that those decisions to recover, to rebuild, is based on what the resident wants and less upon what the hoteliers or the attractions want, because that's what got us in trouble in the first place is we had lost sight and lost touch with those individuals in the community that were beginning to say, hey, this isn't fun to live here anymore. This is kind of getting out of hand. Can you guys slow down? And of course, our paycheck isn't about slowing down. At least it wasn't. And so if we take your thoughts on how do we put on display our love for a community and then hopefully encourage others to mimic us and join us. Maybe that's part of the new image of a destination marketing organization and thus it's new communications internally through a community. I mean, interesting that you say that economic development can be a dirty word. Destinations International, the trade association for all DMOs, has recently put out a a paper on the lexicon of tourism. And in it, they say, try to avoid saying economic development except to somebody who economic development is really important to because to Joe and Jill Public, they fear development because it changes who they are. And they say, and, and also in the lexicon, they say, try not to say destination, try to say community, because we may not see ourselves as a resident, as a destination. In fact, I would say that most of us don't, but we do say that we're part of the community. And so just using the right words to communicate maybe is part of getting our communities to fall back in love with themselves after a really difficult summer. Well said, and kudos to them for putting out that uh, uh, guide to lexicon, because in the same way, um, economic development is asking folks in the community, what enhances your life? What are the institutions locally, mm-hmm. the symphonies, the the hotels where your family can come stay, the restaurants, the activities, the quality of life, the job opportunities that enhance your life, that make you love this community? Uh, we could use a redo on these uh, these these terms. Economic development is really, in a sense, creating the future of your community as you would like it to be. So you can string all the experiences together of living there and have a life that you love. Absolutely. So let's go beyond destination marketing for your third question. 
This summer, you did a series of virtual presentations on the future of the future for a European audience where you made predictions for a pandemic-spooked world, as you called it. Uh, share with us the predictions that should offer us hope as we go forward and the ones that should just scare the shit out of us. Ooh, okay. Well, <clears throat> <laughs> um, the interesting thing about uh, my findings, uh, and I've given them many times now, uh, is that those who had a good strategic plan uh, were able to uh, move quickly to engage it when everything else sort of stopped in times of COVID. McDonald's in the first two months increased the throughput of people in the drive through lane like 23 seconds, which is no small thing. So they captured a bigger share of the marketplace. Healthcare okay. institutions that had a plan for telehealth and were able to engage it quickly found that they were operating at levels of telehealth that they didn't expect until 2023 or 2024. So the important thing in the context of this conversation is have a strat plan for the future, dealing with all the emerging dynamics. Yeah. And if you're good at it and you have a, a, a good planning group and a good facilitator and good guides, you will have a plan that serves you not just with what is expected to come, but with the unexpected, because you'll have different scenarios on which to um, fall. So that's the first point. To the rest of the question, what are the other emerging dynamics to plan for and what's the worst? I'm going to start with the worst because all the other ways I'm going to talk about our emerging dynamics are ways to sort of cope with the worst. And the worst is the worst because it's really hard to figure out what to do about it. It's declining birth rates. It's everywhere around the world, the U.S., Japan, even in China. And what this means for everyone in business today and everyone in communities who rely on a tax base, we will have to generate revenue from a smaller base. The Boston Consulting Group study that I have before me that I wanted to reference talks about every economy's ability to compete depends on a steady supply of human capital and talent. When that supply is inadequate, imbalances result, creating serious threats not only to the economy, but also to social and political stability and future development. So whether one is in the business of attracting visitors or keeping one's own restaurant open for locals or finding workers for it, in the future, we will have to do it off, off a smaller base because a declining birth rate is not something that's going to turn things around. Even if it started in 2022, it would take, you know, 20, 30 years for a magnitude to impact the economy. So that is the really big, scary challenge, I think, of the future. And it requires us to strategically plan differently, to think differently, to understand the emerging marketplace dynamics and where the opportunity lies with them. Yeah, interestingly, uh, a number of us were over at the University of Iowa a year or so ago and, and heard a professor, a researcher, say exactly the same thing you were saying, but from a university model is that there are fewer students eligible to go to college. There are fewer kids coming out of high school that want to go to college because they realize now you don't have to. I mean, if you don't want to become a TikTok star, you sure don't have to, don't have to go get an MBA. And what that does is it puts an amazing amount of pressure on the big schools. And let's just take University of Wisconsin, where we are, where I think you had to have like a 3.9 to even be considered. And that wasn't a guarantee that you were going to get in. Well, that number is going to drop to a 3.7, to a 3.6, to a 3.5. And what that's going to do is then the colleges that were picking up the really great students that couldn't quite qualify for the U are going to have to start dropping their standards. And pretty soon, you're going to have colleges fail further down on, on the list. And now what have you got, right? Now, maybe some of these colleges that fail, there's a good reason for that. But it's more about demographics, he was saying, than it is about not providing a great education for a reasonable price. 
Hmm. I appreciate what you're saying because, uh, of course, the very definition of a leader or someone with an executive title is that their core responsibility is to anticipate and address future issues and opportunities early enough to keep their organizations and operations and aspirations viable. And what you've just described there is a perfect example of a university system thinking that through so they can keep their future viable. But then, of course, uh, the implications for others are considerable, and they too will need to have very resourceful ways and start now to figure out those mitigating factors. Uh, That's what leadership really is all about, addressing the issues and opportunities of the future years before it's too late to do so. This reminds me of a a very important presentation made at the London Business School, which, of course, is uh, known by many to be one of the premier MBA training um, centers in the world. They have campuses all over the world. And they stressed uh, this particular point. Most organizations allocate 90% of their efforts to planning for today with the rest going to tomorrow. This means the day after tomorrow gets nothing. Mm-hmm. Today generates your current value, but when plans for your future value don't extend beyond tomorrow, you won't make it there. It's that simple. What distinguishes category kings and paradigm shifters from others is that they devote lots of time to day after tomorrow thinking. In other words, what's coming three and four years down the pipeline. The problem with COVID, of course, is it has made us think mostly about today and tomorrow. And of course, we have to. But it cannot be at the expense of thinking what's going to happen three, four, five, ten years down the road. And of course, mm-hmm. demographics is a longer term play. But it also relates to the other emerging dynamics that if one understands what they are, they give you an opportunity to start preparing for the day after tomorrow, three, four, five years from now, now, because you can address some of the opportunities they provide now and the next year and the next year. So so you build up a resiliency, a barriers to entry for others, a competitive advantage three or four years from now. But for those big things, it starts planning for them today. Some of those big emerging trends, you know, a lot of folks are accounting for climate change and uh, cybersecurity and those we all have to plan for in our strat planning. But there are some uh, lesser known, less famous emerging dynamics uh, that are all around us as well. For example, we know that the degree to which technology and people and ideas are meeting, and I say mating, and procreating at exponential rates. It's not just the Internet of Things, where supposedly there are 50 billion things now connected by the Internet uh, you know, uh, my security system to my iPhone, et cetera. On top of that, you know, several billion people connected to each other and connected to things. And this has fostered all kinds of amazing innovation. And uh, it is believed that we are uh, very close to cures for cancer. It was five or 10 years ago that quantum computing was predicted to not become a reality until 2035 or 2040. And today, both Google and IBM are arguing about which of them does it better. And of course, SpaceX is now uh, actively working on uh, commercialization of space. Elon Musk has uh, launched two years ago a company that uh, promises to link computers and brains and vice versa. So really amazing things happening. And the opportunity for us all in in this kind of world where people are meeting and mating and ideas are, are happening at an exponential rate is that very little is impossible anymore. So when one says, boy, I wish our community could do this, or I wish I could craft an experience for visitors like this, or I wish this could be our economic development plan and we could attract these kinds of businesses, very little of that is impossible anymore. It is uh, proven again and again, and I could give you from my studies all kinds of other examples, but that's the opportunity to think big and not think of anything as impossible. And speaking of impossibility, another opportunity is a very clear dynamic, and I call it no-line living. 
10 years ago, Bill, you and I would say, well, don't bother me now, I'm going online. Well, we don't say that anymore. There's no difference between online and offline. It's no line living and we go on and off as autonomically as breathing. So what that allows is us to create whole ecosystems in which people live their lives. Uh, WeChat is like that in China. Um, I'd heard about it before I went there and did business there, but of course, people live in that app all day. They order groceries, coffee, call uh, the cab, get a visa, yeah, right. uh, do their banking. They live in yeah. that app. A lot of folks live in Amazon today, their entertainment, their shopping for groceries, clothes, etc. Increasingly, marketers are creating ways to essentially live in this no-line ecosystem of products and services and feedback and commentary uh, and responsiveness. That The opportunity for communities is also to do that, I think especially in travel and hospitality. People who love travel and want to experience the world, find ways to live in the Airbnb app or to make sure they get all of Puerto Rico's emails and, and dig into those videos. They don't distinguish between online and offline. Uh, we have an old family cabin up in Mercer to uh, see the loon cam up there and what winter is like or see the moose crossing the street. I mean, I go back and forth with that as autonomically as breathing it, it, yeah, so I can sort of be in Mercer. Uh, even though I'm miles away. So this is an opportunity, especially for folks in the world of experiences, creating no-line experiences that people can enjoy as autonomically as breathing. And then, of course, with the world the way it is, ideas and people uh, meeting and mating, there's a lot of disruption going along, but with that comes a lot of new partnerships. People are partnering uh, that they never thought they'd partner mm -hmm. with before. IBM and Nielsen have teamed up on some things. Of course, Google is trying to get into to banking. Amazon you know, bought Whole Foods. So partnerships, unexpected mergers and acquisitions, a way of thinking about what we offer and who we can get together with to deliver it is a really interesting concept for opportunity. For example, CVS used to be in the pharmacy business, then of course, of course, they expanded their store offerings to include wine and beer, and then they bought Aetna. And we would no longer call them a pharmacy. We would call them something like a health ecosystem. So the question for those in the travel and hospitality industry is, in today's world where categories are morphing and broadening, in what category would you like to compete? Where can you find competitive advantage and, and opportunities? Disney, of course, was long in the entertainment business, and then they got into the merchandise business, so you could take the memory of the uh, the entertainment with you. You know, now they are destinations for weddings and conventions, and they even have the Disney Institute, which is all about training, optimize the human experience. And I would say that's the category in which they compete, optimizing and enhancing the human experience. So when you stop thinking of yourself in the travel and entertainment business or the hospitality business, but think in a larger sense, what is the business you are? You're in the life enhancement business. That's a different way to think about products and services. Interesting that you bring up Amazon because uh, those who are paying attention to what they're doing is they have now launched Amazon Experiences, where you can learn how to salsa dance from a couple in Puerto Rico for a fee. And now because of, of Zoom and, and other online platforms, you can have an experience from another country for 60 bucks without having to get on a plane, without having to hassle with passports, with any of that. And so now you add over, and of course, the Destination Marketing Organization is nervous about this, just as we were nervous about TripAdvisor and Yelp. And we found a way to become more than we were because before TripAdvisor and before Yelp and others, we were 
if you would look at our visitor guides and our websites, we were lists, list upon list upon list of every restaurant with no real articulation of what that restaurant was. You know, it's, it's Harold's on Main. Well, okay, Yelp fixed that for all of us. Now we know that Harold's is, you know, a cultural icon in this town. So what we did in DMO world is we pivoted to become storytellers because they have the same lists we do, but they can't tell the story of the culture of a community. They can't tell the backstory of a award-winning chef or a maker. So we've already shown that we can pivot into a new way of doing what we do that adds value. But here's where I think the future may come because this whole Amazon experience thing is a little nerve wracking for some of us. But if you bring in Elon Musk, who thinks he's going to put a computer in our brain, does this now allow us to actually do that salsa dance in Puerto Rico? And that becomes the preferred way that we have commerce around the experience economy. And does that then lessen all the issues for over-tourism going forward? We can still monetize it. Now, we're not going to be monetizing hotels. That's going to be the issue because hotels is the number one way, at least currently, that most DMOs receive their revenue is through hotel taxes and hotel assessments. But one wonders if the future ahead is one that the experiences will be provided through technology. Can we be smart enough to see those trends coming and figure out a solution that we are part of online experience and be able to monetize it? Virtual reality is real, and it would not surprise me if Amazon is doing this to develop a database of folks that want to learn dancing and can be future consumers of Amazon's offering of virtual reality dance classes for a fee. It talks about no-line living, it's a great example of that. Mm -hmm. And it also manifests a couple of other immersion dynamics that, that I don't think a lot of folks realize. It is the fact that commerce, culture, and consumption are converging because technology and ideas and people can meet and mate and make all kinds of things happen in a way they couldn't. It really is changing how we are operating and marketing ourselves. It's all about uh, getting databases, getting communities of like-minded people, people interested in the same things, and then leveraging them. It really is a 180-degree flip in how things used to be marketed. The whole business world used to develop products, and then with advertising and PR, try to find customers for them. To now, that the strategy is to first build a community of followers and then develop and launch to them. I use in all my presentations around the world a couple of examples, like Kim Kardashian, who has 145 million followers on Instagram. So one day she launches a new line of clothes, shapewear, and it sells out on one day. A couple of weeks later, she launches a new line of wedding cosmetics. It sells out in a day. Uh, she also offers home decor items like uh, bedspreads and uh, a Visa a debit card. She has all these product offerings, and whenever she rolls something out, with 145 million followers, they don't all buy, but a sufficient number buy, so that she is very, very successful. This is not unique to her. The dudes who were college roommates monetized their uh, their videos and things of crazy stunts, and they have something like 40,000 followers, and they then market stunt gifts and uh, games for like birthday parties. I can give you all kinds of examples, uh, especially in the entertainment world, but uh, Google's Nest 
system of home security. Nest sold to Google because uh, they wanted the larger network, and Google gave it to them. This goes on and on and on. The point about Amazon with dance classes is they no doubt are trying to find a community of followers that are interested in salsa or any other kinds of dance that they can then further leverage all kinds of products and services. The phenomenon happening is that it used to be 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, people were born into a community. By that, I mean literally the town, the neighborhood, the church, the school, all these institutions. And then they spent their whole life trying to find out who they were as an individual. But now it's the opposite. Today, families are weakened and institutions are weakened. So we sort of feel like we're born into the world as an individual, latchkey kids, mom and dad off working. And then we spend our whole life trying to find a community in which we feel at home, in which we feel we can be who we are or aspire to be. So the whole point about community in the larger sense, the neighborhood one feels one belongs to, the community that feeds your life experiences, that helps you be who you are or aspire to be. Marketing that today really requires us to understand this convergence of commerce, culture, and consumption, to find those folks, develop the followers into which you can feed information about your community, to develop the followers yourself so that you can immediately communicate to them the slightest change, the good news, this restaurant's open, come back to the convention center, the symphony is back up and running, those emotional benefits of experiencing your own community and then the followers that would include folks outside of your community as well, so you can efficiently market to them. This is marketing in the future, and the future belongs to those who develop those number of followers now and in large numbers so that increasingly, with the no-line living prospect, you can market to folks over and over and over again in the future, virtual or you know, come and visit in person, uh, but it's the way marketing will be done in the future. And I would suggest for destination marketing organizations, it needs to be done right now because for every critic of destination marketing, we've heard it over and over, they look at a DMO and say, well, you guys can't be very busy right now. <laughs> it's like they're probably busier now than they ever have been. Yeah. Part of that clearly is assisting local business. But the other part is doing exactly what you say is making sure that we don't fall out of top of mind. So when it's time for us to travel again, that we'll think of our destination first or the, the destination of the DMO. So I think building that fan base, you know, right now when we're not consumed necessarily with some of the traditional things that we have done in the past, I think this is exactly what we should carve out some of our day to be doing is continue to make just raging thunder lizard fans, as Guy Kawasaki once called them. Mm-hmm. So Marcia, thank you so much for exploding our heads, but I can't let you go without the bonus round question. So for over 20 years, you were the force behind an event called Brandworks University. It was the premier brand conference in North America, if not the world, while I always came to hear your keynote, and I actually once saw you take a chainsaw on stage to a Gordian knot. Yeah. (laughs) I will never forget that. Tell us your fondest remembrances of the brand icons and the speakers and the experiences from those amazing conferences. Well, it's something that I'm incredibly proud of. We put on Brandworks University for 25 years. It was called the TED of marketing, the MBA program on what's best and next. We would have 400 or so every year from the world over for three days of learning. But because it was such a cerebral event, you know, we had speakers from Stanford and UCLA and the INSEAD in Paris and 
uh, CEOs and uh, CMOs and all, we really tried to soften the experience with fun and a lot of emotion that people could identify with. So most of my memories, uh, the emotional things, and, and some of them were the outrageous, like taking the chainsaw to a big Gordian knot. One was the time that the we always opened with an improv group when they called folks from the audience up to do a conga line. And were you in the conga line, Bill? I know a lot of folks went up and participated. One of the the things I'm proudest of was the year that I was teaching the importance of, of thinking of marketing as really training. The idea that uh, it's it's our job, no matter our business or our category, to inspire people's behaviors and manage them in an ongoing way so that our organizations can remain viable. And I likened it to how we need to train children uh, to use the bathroom, and it takes a lot of training and reinforcement in the same way we train pets, our dogs, for example. So I, at that time, had the three-year-old Marco Polo, Springer Spaniel, an explorer, and I was very proud of the training I'd done. So we would have the conference in the round, so in the center stage, elevated above the folks, I called Marco from the edge of the room, confident he would run up to the stage as called, and he did, and confident that he would step up on the little platform on the stage, which he did, and confident that I would be able to place on his brow between his two eyes a treat and would make him hold it until I gave him permission to eat it. So this all went very well, and he had the treat between his eyes and allowed me to walk around him, the drool coming out of his lips, to make the point that even when it seems really hard to train animals or things to certain behaviors, it is possible if you know the behaviors you want to train people to, and then with frequency, you train them. So he performed beautifully, but it's analogous to, I think, all the things we're talking about today. You can train people to love your community, to uh, stick in there with you, to be an advocate for the community. You can train people to become a follower of yours and then to consider your new products and offerings. Training is really what marketing is. So the things I'm proudest of with Brandworks were that training, but then really making it experiential. I think among the biggest and most gratifying memories of Brandworks were, again, analogous to folks in the travel and hospitality business. There was magic that happened when you got people together, folks from different countries and different walks of life, different ages, and the receptions were magical. People became friends, lifelong friends. They still call each other, learn from each other, email, LinkedIn, look to each other for jobs. It was amazing, and to this day, and it's, it's made a big difference in my life, and I know continues, the networks, the people, the community that came out of that really make a big difference to others as well. It was an amazing three days, and thank you so much for inviting me each year. But today, for blessing us with your insights, um, as your calendar is beginning to build back in, tell us some of the things you're going to be up to in the next few months and where people can find more of your thought leadership online. Well, thank you for asking. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, and uh, there you'll see a lot of the postings of my white papers, and uh, often I'll uh, alert folks via LinkedIn to virtual presentations I'm giving, because so much is virtual today, uh, workshops and seminars. Uh, And occasionally, uh, well, I was to speak at South by Southwest last March, and of course that was canceled, Uh, but uh, I'll post there uh, other conferences and things as uh, we go back to live. 2021 and beyond will continue the things I've always done, this research into these emerging dynamics and what it means for us all. I always do playbooks with how to deal with what I find, and you can find those also on my website, which is 
www.lfands.com, which is Lindsay Foresight and Strategy, lfands.com. All right. Thank you so much. We cannot wait to get back together with you and Rick uh, when the time is right. Uh, it has been far, far too long. And uh, again, we thank you for all of your insights today. Well, it's always a pleasure. I've learned so much from you over the years. Well, that's kind and of uh, the business world, the world of communities and their economic development needs, uh, is just lucky to have you and Terry and the whole DMO's pros program. Thanks. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers this is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's DMOU.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, our friends at Longwoods International, the producers of groundbreaking research, thought-leading insights, and excellent counsel and service to DMOs in areas such as visitor research, advertising effectiveness, image research, and their new resident sentiment study. Learn more at longwoods-intl.com. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find links to our services for the DMO sector, our new position papers on the next generation of community development and onboard diversity, also links to the Z News, our Knowledge Bank, videos, blogs, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as past episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.